And Jesus said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, and then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nest in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would give us understanding. Help us with these parables of a seed being planted and growing into a mighty empire, and give us faith to believe and trust in Jesus' word. We ask you to speak, God, for your servants are listening. Amen. Several weeks ago, my friend Rhonda King, who takes excellent pictures along with her daughters, posted a picture on Facebook. It was of a creature that I had never seen before. It was a small insect that looked like a brown, withered leaf. And they had found it in their garage. And so I immediately commented on Facebook, which I don't comment that much, and I asked the question, where do you live? Because they take the strangest pictures of all exotic creatures, and it is like they live in a game park of some sort that imports wild exotic animals. Later that day, I saw Rhonda. I was cutting through the church here, and Rhonda was here, and she said, Chuck, it's not where you live, it's what you see. And what she was saying is, well, it's the attention you pay to the world around you, and the amount of attention you pay will determine what you see, and that most of us, just in our busyness and the pace of our lives, we miss all kinds of little small details. And this prehistoric-looking moth, I would have never seen because I simply would have passed over it as a piece of decaying leaf. And so, it's not where you live, it's what you see. Jesus says something very similar as he speaks to his disciples. In verse 24, he says, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Repeatedly, Jesus has said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was calling all of us to listen to him carefully. Because there was a reality unfolding in his teaching that was easy to miss. And this is what is happening as Jesus proclaims the gospel. 
is the kingdom of God is being launched and advanced into the earth. The healing of all creation was unfolding. But if we don't listen carefully, we can miss the way that it's unfolding because it's not what we would expect, and we must have attentive ears. And so the major question is, why is God's kingdom so easy to miss? Why can we so easily overlook it and think that it's simply something on the side not to be noticed? Why is God's kingdom easy to miss? And there's two reasons that it's easy to miss that we find in our passage this morning. The first is simply this. It's easy to miss because God's wisdom is not our wisdom. Now, as a kid, I grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina. That was, I originally started there and then moved to Greenville, North Carolina. But in Greensboro, I, le- I lived near the National Park where the uh, Battle of Guilford Courthouse was fought. So some of my earliest memories were killing redcoats in my backyard and reenacting this whole battle that took place just about a mile from my house. A few years ago, I dragged my wife back to that battlefield just so I could kind of relive some childhood experiences. And it was interesting at that point because I picked up a small history book that brought in some flavor and color, things that I had never known about the Battle of Guilford Courthouse. It was fought on March 15, 1781. Uh, It was in North Carolina in the central section of the state, and Nathaniel Green was the general of the American army there in the south. And Green, when he lured General Cornwallis to Guilford Courthouse, he did so not with the intention of winning a great military victory. You say, what? Why did he lure the British army into a battle without the intention of securing a great military victory? Nathaniel Green was drawing Cornwallis out of South Carolina into North Carolina, And he intended to engage him, and there was a fierce battle that took place at Guilford Courthouse. The British actually won the battle. The Americans strategically retreated. The British had heavy losses. And Nathaniel Green writes of the great victory that the Americans had, because his whole intent was to draw Cornwallis into the backcountry where his supply lines would be depleted and where he could not be refreshed with soldiers. And so Cornwallis ends up retreating to the coast, to Wilmington, to resupply for the winter. And then he's cut off from the rest of the south, and he ends up going to Yorktown, where he's eventually defeated. And this was all part of Nathaniel Green's great plan, was to draw Cornwallis into a situation where it would look like he had a victory. But it was his greatest defeat. Cornwallis himself notes, after the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, he has a great line. He writes a a letter back to England, and he says, another such victory, and we shall all be home in England. (laughs) And friends, what we find in the ministry of Jesus is this kind of dynamic taking place, where there is a wisdom at work that goes beyond our wisdom and understanding of things. Jesus asks a question. He says, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? Obviously, no. You would never bring a lamp into a room simply to conceal it. And then he says this in verse 22, for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. 
And so Jesus says, but if something is secret and if something is hidden, it will come to light. It will be manifested. And what is Jesus speaking of? He's speaking of his own identity. He's speaking of who he is. If you remember up to this point in the gospel, the only people to, con- to have confessed who Jesus is are the demons. Jesus has been concealing his identity because he knew where people would run with it. And so the only ones to acknowledge who he is are those forces that are opposed to him. And so Jesus has shrouded his identity and cloaked it. And he's explaining here why. He's explaining because it will be revealed that what is hidden will be made manifest, that what is secret will come to light, and that God has a deeper wisdom in concealing Jesus' identity, that Jesus comes in a humble form. He is out of Nazareth. He was born to a poor family. He was no one significant. And he begins to proclaim the gospel, announcing that God's purposes to unite all things in heaven and on earth are being realized in him. And for most first century Jews, and perhaps for many of us today, we look at that and say that's uniquely unimpressive. How could all that be true in such a humble form? How could God be working in and through His great purposes in such a simple man? And it was because of this simplicity that the Pharisees wanted to get rid of Him. That He was a blasphemer. That He was doing the wrong things. That He was eating with the wrong people. That He couldn't make good on all the promises He said He was fulfilling. And so they killed Him. And it was a victory, so they thought. But like Lord Cornwallis, another such victory they could not sustain. Because in the concealing of Jesus' identity, the salvation of the world is won. It is accomplished. And that required Jesus going to the cross. And so Jesus says that he was concealed that his identity might be revealed, that it was hidden in secret, that it might come to light, because on the cross the full glory of God was seen, and it was seen by all the nations of the earth. And if you remember in chapter 15 in Mark's gospel, as Jesus dies on the cross, a Roman centurion says, truly this was the Son of God. That God in all of His glory and His mercy and His justice was blown out and revealed on the cross of Jesus. And friends, one of the reasons it's so easy for us to miss Jesus is because we don't see the wisdom of God working to accomplish the world's salvation. That we simply are prone to look for things that are grander, for things that are more attractive, for things that are more powerful, for things that our world would tell us have more glory. And we miss the unique way that God in His wisdom solves the world's problem of sin. And so He comes in the humble form of a man. He goes under the death, under, under the curse of sin. He goes into death in order to destroy it. He was concealed that the light of God and His glory might be made manifest. And this is why it's easy to miss. And so we need to listen carefully, 
understanding God's way and God's will and what God's work in the world is. But the second reason it's easy to miss is we miss it because God's work seems insignificant and certainly insufficient to deliver on God's promises. If you look in verses 30 through 35, Jesus tells another parable. It's the parable of the mustard seed. And a mustard seed is a small seed. It's one of the smallest that we know of. And it grows into a significant-sized bush or shrub. Listen to what Jesus says. With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nest in its shade. Jesus, when he uses this last phrase, so that the birds of the air can make nest in its shade. He's quoting from the Old Testament, specifically from the book of Ezekiel, where he is speaking of the great day where God would gather the nations into his kingdom. And so Jesus, in quoting from the Old Testament, making this allusion, has drawn everyone into the great purposes of God. And he's saying that the kingdom he is planting is to accomplish those purposes. And many people would have asked, but we don't get it. We don't see it. And this is why Jesus says it's like a mustard seed. It's unimpressive at the beginning. It seems insignificant. It seems insufficient. But it is this small mustard seed that metastasizes and grows exponentially. And from this small seed grows a huge tree. Jesus says, that's what my kingdom is like. That it goes into the unexpected, that it multiplies, that it grows with a fierce growth that only God can give. And friends, once again, this counters so many of the expectations that are wired into us. That we don't think from such humble and ordinary origins that God could bring the salvation of the world it's easy to dismiss it. We don't think out of humble and ordinary things that God would be pleased to bless and multiply. Perhaps one of the greatest stories of this in church history is of a Baptist missionary named William Carey. Carey was a shoe cobbler in the United Kingdom, and he felt God calling him to preach the gospel He ends up going to India, and in 1793, he arrives in Calcutta. It was a city of some 200,000, which was a large city at that point in world history. And Timothy George, in his book, Faithful Witness, records what was on Carey's heart and mind as he arrives in Calcutta. Listen to this. What could he do, this lone little man, against the principalities and powers of darkness. Here is his resume. Education, minimal. Degrees, none. Savings, depleted. Political influence, nil. References, a band of country preachers halfway around the world. 
And here William Carey shows up to preach the gospel to the nation of India. He has nothing to commend himself. He has no power. He has no strength. It seems insignificant. And yet what drove William Carey? He believed the kingdom of God was like a mustard seed. He could see the potential in the smallness, in the ordinariness, in the, in the humility. And he believed that God could make fruit bear from that. And so William Carey labored and labored at Bible translation, simply trying to get a clean copy of the Scripture so the gospel could be known by the people. He worked and he worked and he worked. He worked against many, many hours and many, many adversities. He saw very little fruit. And it was only through William Carey's efforts, though, that the church in India was reborn. Through his long and hard labors, And friends, this is what we must believe. Rather than dismissing God's kingdom because it looks so small and puny, and certainly it can't turn into something that blesses the nations, we must believe that God accomplishes His purposes, that He does His work in His way. John Newton writes this, and he writes this of William Carey. He says, but when he has a work to accomplish, that is God, and his time has come, However inadequate and weak that means he employs may seem to a carnal eye, the success is infallibly secured, for all things serve him and are in his hands as clay in the hands of the potter. That God accomplishes his purposes, that he takes the small mustard seed, the humble thing, and he grows it into a great tree that will bless all the world. And so it's easy for us to miss. We don't get... God's wisdom, God's way seems insignificant to us and insufficient. And so what can possibly bolster our faith in this God who works in ways that are so wild to us, that don't come naturally to us? What can bolster our faith to trust in this God and to believe in Him? And so Jesus tells another parable in verses 26 through 29. He says, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Jesus says that there is a sowing activity that goes on. The word, the gospel, is sown. But then you notice that the sower does nothing else. He sleeps and rises day and night. Then 29, in verse 28, the earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain. In the original, there's an interesting word here. It's the word that we have used as automatic. The earth automatically grows. That what Jesus is saying in this story is that the seed is planted and the seed has the power to bear fruit that God has given life to the seed, 
and that the seed enters the world and creates, that it grows, that it expands. How is it that we can trust this God? How do we know that He will accomplish His purposes? Because automatically He does so. It's inside of His power. He is the one who has blessed the seed to give it life, that gives life to all the world, that it expands and grows. And that there is first a blade, then an ear, and then full grain in the ear. And then there will be a harvest. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 3 where he says, there are those who plant and those who are water, but it is God who gives the growth. And friends, this is the confidence of the Christian. This is why we entrust ourselves to this God, even though we don't always fully understand His wisdom, even though we can see that it's marvelous and that it does reveal light. And even though we don't understand all of His way and taking a small something that seems so insignificant and growing it and blessing it like a mustard seed, that we can trust that God in His kingdom purposes brings them to maturity because He's the one who oversees the growth. He blesses it. He has given it the energy that He brings it to its proper end and that it bears fruit. And as Jesus said last week, 30, 60, and 100-fold, that God accomplishes His kingdom purposes. And where this becomes so significant for us is that all of these promises of God to bear fruit through the kingdom, while the sower simply throws out the seed, he simply scatters it. It works against our discouragement because how often can we feel ourselves that we simply aren't making any progress? That as seed is scattered, as we tell the gospel to friends and neighbors, as we talk with those around us, we can feel incredibly ineffective. That we face challenges in the Christian life. We can be discouraged by those. There's hardness and there's trial. There's deep disappointments. Friends who don't share belief, those who seem to walk away. And what Jesus is saying is that God will accomplish His purposes. He does so automatically. He does so inside of His great power. Friends, our responsibility is to simply spread the seed, to rise and sleep, and it is God in His great power who will bear the fruit. God accomplishes His purpose. And so we're to listen carefully. We're to listen to the wisdom of God revealed in the gospel. The way that God overturns sin, the way He does throw so through a humble peasant named Jesus. The way that He's renewing all things through His death and resurrection. That word, that story, is the powerful seed that God has planted. It has the power to renew your life, to overturn everything about it. It's the story that makes everything new. And friends, let's continually be vitalized by that and trust that God is working out His purposes. We can look to Him in faith.